Good morning, Kraut family. Happy, happy Sunday. I'm so glad you can join us today. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're now in part 17 of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. And in that text, Paul takes up the question of singleness in a time of social and cultural distress. In verses 25 to 35, Paul gives great advice, great counsel to the unmarried. Now, Paul's point is that it's good, if at all possible, to remain single. Why? Because of the present crisis, the present distress. Paul foresaw that a time of persecution and suffering was was coming. And you see, those who were anti-Christian would take the Christian and torture them in front of their, their loved ones and even torture the whole family trying to get them to renounce Christ. And Paul's point is if if you're not married, if you're not married, there's no one to torture but you. In other words, it's one thing to severely suffer yourself as a believer, it's quite another to have to watch your spouse or child you love suffer. Then he says, but those who marry will face many troubles, say troubles, in this life, and I want to spare you this. The word trouble there in the Greek is the lipsis it means pressed together. It means under pressure, which is an interesting description of the marriage relationship. You see, in a marriage, you have two people, two people who are pressed together in the closest possible way, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And Paul is straight up telling the unmarried, these unmarried single believers, understand that you must enter into marriage with a mature look. In other words, listen now, you're going to be with another person for a lifetime. You're going to be pressed together. And Paul points out that singles have freedoms that those who are married don't have. Singles can serve God without as many earthly distractions, but those who are married are divided in in the sense that they must and they should, because they're married, should give attention to the needs of their spouse, of their children. In verses 36 or 38, Paul then gives advice, wise counsel about whether or not a father should give his virgin daughter in marriage. And here Paul is answering the Corinthian questions uh, about whether or not it was okay to dedicate one's daughter to the Lord and not arrange for her to be married or to allow her to be married. And Paul says that in both cases, the father will do well and will not have sinned. However, the father who keeps his commitment to have his virgin daughter dedicated to serve God as unmarried, he will do better. Why? Why? Because a single person is able to give more time and undivided devotion to God and the things of God. Now, while both, and Paul says it, while both marriage and singleness are gifts from God, there are times when singleness is the better choice. And that was Paul's point. In verses 39 through 40, Paul gives advice and wise counsel to the widow or the widower, And Paul makes it very clear there that the widow or widower is free to remarry, but must be married to a believer. And in Paul's judgment, in the happier, it's the happier state for a widow to stay single. Why? Because she has more time and more freedom to serve God. This now brings us to today's text. The title of my message is Liberty and Love. Everyone say that, Liberty and love. Now, in chapter 7, 
Paul already dealt with their questions about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and single, singleness, excuse me, singleness, and he's continuing to answer the next of their questions in this chapter, chapter 8, also in chapter 9 and chapter 10, where he deals with the answer to another question they had about, listen now, about Christian liberty. Say that, Christian liberty. Now remember, Corinth, friends, was a wicked city filled with idolatry because of pagan temple worship. And just about every convert to Christianity in Corinth was saved out of this idolatrous, heathen worship. And all Christians agreed a complete break, a complete break, listen now, with heathen practices had to be made after one became a believer in Christ. I want you to write this down, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, Paul writes, They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 1 John 5.21 1 John 5.21 says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. However, in Corinth, there arose the problem of meat offered to idols. And the Corinthian church had a question for Paul. They had a question for Paul. Is it okay, Paul? Is it right? Is it permissible? Do we have the liberty to eat meat which was sacrificed to idols? And you see, friends, the practice of, of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols became a point of, of controversy or even contention between the believers in Corinth. This was a gray area, a gray area. Uh, there was really no clear command about this in Scripture. Now, this subject is irrelevant to us today. I don't know of anyone who eats meat sacrificed to idols. Do you? Of course not. But what about those gray areas? What about those things that Jesus didn't specifically teach on, nor do we have clear commands in Scripture, in God's Word, regarding those gray areas? Now listen, I'm not talking about murder or theft or adultery fornication, gluttony, homosexuality, lying, covetousness, or a number of other sins that the Bible makes it very, very clear are always sinful and wrong. I'm talking about, and what I'm talking about, is those gray areas such as smoking, drinking, gambling, rated R movies, piercings, tattoos, dancing, the type of music we listen to or the type of clothing that we wear. Those are secondary issues, uh, non-essentials, what we call gray areas. That's what I'm talking about. And you see, even though Paul is speaking on the subject of, of eating meat, which was sacrificed to idols, the principles that he shares in this chapter can be applied in our day as well. And can only, listen now, be solved by applying the principles. Now, now, I want to say this before I move on. As dangerous as it is to be legalistic, and it's very dangerous to be legalistic, it is just as wrong for those who have a wide view of Christian liberty. Now, here in the text, Paul's addressing the stronger believer, but he's principally talking about the weaker believer. 
how the stronger believer is to handle the weaker believer, what to do, what not to do, what the stronger believer is to do in these areas, of these gray areas, these non-essential areas around the weaker brother or sister in Christ. I also want to point out that this message is not about being a vegan. Okay, got it? Three points from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, if you're ready, say yes. Point number one is accurate knowledge. Write that down. Accurate knowledge. Accurate knowledge. Now let's look at verse one. Verse one. And Paul writes, now about food sacrificed to idols. Now, and I want to stop there because I want to give you some background here. The meat offered on pagan altars was, was usually divided into three portions. The first portion was burnt in honor of the God. And it was a very small portion. The second portion was given to the worshiper to take home and eat. And the third portion was given to the pagan priest. Now, if the pagan priest didn't want to eat his portion, what he would do is he would sell it uh, to the temple restaurant or to the meat market. Now, there were several ways that the Corinthian believers might come into contact with meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And, and one way was buying meat in the marketplace. Buying meat in the marketplace. When a Christian went grocery shopping, there was, also, excuse me, there was always a possibility that the meat had been offered to an idol. Another way was eating dinner at home, uh, eating dinner at the home of friends, excuse me, of friends, and neighbors, eating dinner at the home of friends and neighbors. When, when Christians were invited to eat dinner uh, with unsaved neighbors or unsaved friends, there was no guarantee that the meat they were served had not been sacrificed to an idol. Another way was eating in the pagan temples themselves, eating in the pagan temple themselves. Some of the pagan temples would be used as public meeting halls, which could accommodate a large gathering for public affairs or uh, community social functions which Christians might attend, and the meat at these functions would probably have been offered to the temple God. Now, two different viewpoints arose in the church at Corinth about how a believer should handle this situation. So I want you to follow me here. One group considered the food to be defiled, to be polluted, or tainted by its association with the pagan idol. Now, this group refused to eat such food, and they were, this group, they were offended, offended by other believers who ate this food. The other group claimed that the food itself was not defiled in any way and that it could be eaten without any harmful effect on them or their testimony. This group, the second group, looked down on the other believers who held stricter beliefs. If you got it, say got it. Now, before Paul answers their question, which he will answer in verse 4, he first wants them, us believers, all believers, to check our hearts before we get to the answer. Now, notice that instead, instead of talking about food, Paul first talks about knowledge and love. Say knowledge and say, say love. So let's read on verse 1. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. I'm going to stop there. Okay, so... Well, as if you're safe, say amen. Okay, you said amen. We're all learning and we're all growing in our in our knowledge of God's word, right? We're all accumulating knowledge, and that's a good thing, right? But knowledge for knowledge's sake is not a good thing. 
Because what it does, it only feeds pride. What it does, it puffs up. It puffs up. Your, your head swells up. Some Christians grow up. Others just swell up. Now, friends, they were strong. You see, they were strong believers who were advanced in, in doctrine, who were advanced uh, in biblical knowledge, who knew that idols were nothing, that idols were nothing, and meat sacrificed to idols was still good meat because idols were nothing. And they understood their rights to Christian liberty and insisted upon eating the meat, not giving into any superstitious beliefs about idols. Now, the problem, the problem with these strong, knowledgeable believers was that they became proud, proud of their knowledge and boasted of their Christian liberty. Now, listen, if you're learning and getting more biblical knowledge just so you can know more than the next brother or sister in Christ, that means you're all puffed up. Paul says that kind of knowledge, what? Puffs up. And so these mature, strong believers had an inaccurate knowledge. Okay, it wasn't accurate. But notice what Paul says. Look at the end of verse 1. But love builds up. But love builds up. In other words, if your knowledge, if your knowledge, I love this, if your knowledge of God's word causes you to love God and causes you to love others, then that's accurate knowledge. That's the right use of knowledge. That's the profitable, profitable kind of knowledge, the knowledge that leads to love. And you see, Paul is simply telling these strong believers, you might have great knowledge, but your knowledge must be balanced by love. Are you getting it? Balanced by love. So there's a lesson, and here's a lesson. Are you ready? Knowledge and love must go together. Write that down. Knowledge and love must go together. Knowledge and love must go together. Write this down, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Ephesians 4, 15, Paul, same author, writes this. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. It has been said, truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. You've heard that saying, right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you what? You care. And that is so true. It's not just orthodoxy, friends, you know, knowing doctrinal truth, but it's also orthopraxy. It's putting those doctrinal truths into practice. Warren Wiersbe said this, Knowledge can be a weapon to fight with or a tool to build up depending on how you use it. If it puffs up, then it cannot build up. It cannot edify. Verse 2. You still with me? Say amen. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, Paul's simply saying a know-it-all attitude is only an evidence of ignorance. Sir Isaac Newton, the scientist who discovered gravity and made a number of other brilliant discoveries, once said that he was only gathering pebbles on the shore of the ocean of knowledge. I love that. I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been a pastor for 29 years. And you know what? The more, the more that I study the Word of God, the more I realize how much I don't know. I don't know. 
I want to say this. If, if you come to the Word of God thinking that you already know it all, then you don't really know. Then you don't really know. Your pride is keeping you from learning. Listen now, your pride is keeping you from learning the way God wants you to learn. Well, what's that way? Well, let's look at verse 3. Verse 3, but the man who loves God is known by God. You see, and stay with me here, God intends for your knowledge to produce a love for Him, which will then produce a love for others. I want you to follow me here, okay? To know God as He truly is and to know the truths of His Word, to know that you cannot help but to respond to others in love. And that's Paul's point. Paul's point is knowledge must be balanced by love if we are to use our Christian freedom in the right way. Got it? Now, if you love God, say amen. Come on, if you love God, say amen. Well, guess what? You are known by God. That's what the text says, right? You are known by God. I love that. I love that. And I want to tell you, friends, I love God, and I know God, but what blesses me and comforts my heart more than that is that God loves me and God knows me. That blesses my heart. And He knows me intimately. He knows me totally. He knows me completely. He knows me inside and out. He knows me. And knowing, you know, how sinful I can be and how dumb I can be, He still loves me. Now, even though I don't know God completely like He knows me, I can still know Him personally. Verses 4 and 6, if you're still with me, say amen. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. There is no God but one. Deuteronomy 6.4 says that there is but one God. Okay, Deuteronomy 6.4. Let's read on verse 5. For even if there are so-called, so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Did you get that? Verse 6, love this. Yet for us, those who are saved, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is God, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Listen, Paul is saying there are many gods, and there are many gods, but... There is only one true God. And that's the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying idols are not real. They're not real. They have eyes, but they cannot see, right? The psalmist wrote that. They have ears, but cannot hear. Hands, but cannot touch. Feet, but cannot move. Cannot walk. They're not real. But God is. God is real. So here Paul answered their question. Idols are nothing. Therefore, the meat sacrificed to idols is nothing. And the stronger believers knew that. They knew that idols are nothing, that there's only one God. They knew that there was only one God, true God, and that an idol is nothing and meat is just meat. Therefore, who cares? Eat it. Eat it. But, but, not everyone has that knowledge. You see, many new believers in Corinth 
in the Corinthian culture, should I say in the Corinthian culture, had not arrived to this level of maturity with full assurance that meat offered to idols is nothing. Which brings us to point number two. And that's appropriate concern. Appropriate concern. Appropriate concern. Write that down. Appropriate concern. Verse 7. Accurate knowledge. Appropriate concern. Verse 7. But not everyone knows this. Do you get that? Not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience, get this now, their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So some new believers, uh, right? Uh, some new believers still struggled with the sense that they were doing something wrong in eating the meat, even though the meat had truly been offered to nothing. Because an idol is nothing. So for such a believer with a weak conscience, to eat meat would be to defile, in other words, literally soil, literally soil that conscience before God. So it went against their conscience. They were trying to move on. This is how they, were, they were trying to move on from, from that past life, but still dealing with and coming across and connected to that past life, which was, which was meat sacrificed to idols. That's the real tension in this text. It's kind of like our, our past, right? There are things in our past, B.C., before Christ, that we want to forget. Some, some believers are reminded about their past when they go to certain, certain uh, gatherings or certain events, and perhaps it's smoking or, or alcohol or a certain type of music or a certain area in the city or perhaps even certain people who they used to associate with. Or, or a TV show or movie. And this is exactly what was happening in Corinth. As a believer, as a weak believer with a weak conscience, they were saying, well, what, what, what can I say yes to? And what can I say, and what should I say no to? I mean, what can I partake of without sinning? Well, look at verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. You got to get this. But food does not bring us near to God. Okay? We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Paul is saying, as believers, we're not benefited one way or another, friends, before God, whether we eat certain foods or not, whether we exercise our liberty in those gray areas or not. In other words, if I don't do them, okay, I'm not more spiritual, and if I do them, I'm not less spiritual. But, but, we must beware, let's not beware, lest, our liberty become a stumbling block to another believer. Look at verse 9. It brings us right into verse 9. Be careful, however, he's speaking to the strong believers here, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Did you get that? Remember what Paul's saying, you may be one of the strong believers who doesn't have a problem at all eating meat sacrificed to idols. I mean, you have knowledge. You have knowledge that, that it's just a statue. But you need, you need to be very careful, Paul says, that your liberty to eat this kind of meat will not cause, not cause a weaker believer to stumble. Your knowledge needs to be balanced by love, with love. And you see, Paul reminds us that our freedom in Christ comes with a responsibility to protect the welfare of the Christian community. 
There's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Are you ready? Here's a lesson. Christian freedom, got to get this, Christian freedom is tied to Christian responsibility. Christian freedom is tied to Christian responsibility. You see, as a result, there may be occasion, there may be occasion for us to restrain our personal freedom so we won't cause another believer to stumble. Now, to, to illustrate this, I'm, I'm going to use alcohol as an example. You know, because alcohol is a hot-button issue, has always been a hot-button issue in the church. Now listen, the Bible is very, very clear that drinking is not a sin. It's not a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. And by the way, uh, to be buzzed is to be drunk. But drinking is not a sin. So as a believer, yes, you have the liberty to drink, but not to get drunk. Now, personally, I don't drink. And I don't drink because I think that I'm more spiritual or better than those who do drink. It's a personal conviction of mine. And I don't expect my personal conviction to be your personal conviction. Okay, if you got that, I want to make sure we're clear on that, okay? So let's just say that you want to have a drink, which you have the freedom to do so. Uh, but there happens to be a brother or sister in Christ who struggles with alcohol or who's a recovering alcoholic. Well, in that case, you are to refrain, refrain from drinking so that you won't make that brother or sister in Christ stumble. Instead, have water or soda or tea because our freedom in Christ comes with a responsibility to protect the welfare of the Christian community. So question, which is more important to you? Think about it. Which is more important to you? The spiritual health of a fellow believer or enjoying your freedoms that may cause another believer to stumble? Listen, we are not free to do whatever we please. Rather, we are free to do that which is good and which is edifying. Got it? Verse 10. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in, a, in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened, in other words, built up, to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? In other words, if the believer with a weak conscience sees the, the stronger believer eating in the temple, the weaker believer may be tempted to do that which is contrary to their conscience causing them to stumble. In other words, there, the strong believer's misuse of liberty was building others up towards sin, to, to, to stumble, to fall. Now notice the word conscience. And by the way, the word conscience is mentioned 32 times, 32 times in the New Testament. It's that internal courtroom that condemns or commends our decisions. It's, it's evaluating our own thoughts and actions, and that's what sets us, apart from, sets us apart from animals. Now, the weaker believers, those who have weak conscience, those are the ones who don't fully understand what God says is sin, and what God doesn't say is sin. Therefore, if they do something they think might be sin, their conscience, stay with me here now, their conscience bothers them and they mistakenly feel that they are out of fellowship with God and guilty of something. The mature, stronger believers, those with a stronger conscience, are those who know what 
is sin, and what is not sin, and is therefore, listen now, able to understand and use their liberty in Christ to do anything that is not sin without their conscience bothering them. Now listen, Paul is not speaking about being weak or strong in regard to self-control, but in regard to knowledge. Okay, knowledge. Let's move on, verses 11 and 12. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Well, what's that knowledge? That meat is offered to idols, is nothing, okay? It's nothing, so no big deal, okay? So you can eat in front of the weaker believer. But listen to what he says. Verse 12, when you sin against your brother in this way, in other words, eating meat in front of him without regard to his weak conscience, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Listen, forcing my freedom onto another believer whose conscience is not as strong as mine not only undermines his or her, listen now, his or her Christian growth, but violates the body of Christ of which we are part of. I not only sin against that brother or sister, I sin against Christ. Follow me here. Every Christian is in spiritual union with Christ, right? And anything, any sin, excuse me, any sin done against a believer is direct sin against Christ. Why don't you write this down, Matthew, Matthew 18, verse 6. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. And, and Jesus said this, But if anyone causes one of these little ones, speaking of those young in the faith, young in the faith, who believe in me to sin, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Do you get that? Listen, Jesus gave up his life for us, right? So we should be willing, if needed, to give up our liberty for the sake of others. Point number three, point number three, is adamant love. Adamant, adamant love. In other words, unshakable, insistent love. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Therefore, if what... I eat causes my, this is what he says. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. Wow. So that I will what? Not cause him to fall, to stumble. Romans 14, 21. Romans 14, 21, which also talks about our Christian liberty. Paul writes, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Charles Spurgeon, uh, for most of his life, was a tobacco, tobacco user. And he smoked a pipe all the time. And one day, as he was walking through the streets of London, he passed, tobacco, he passed a tobacco store that was advertising a certain brand of tobacco. That advertisement said, the brand that Spurgeon smokes. And when he saw that, he was convicted and became aware for the first time that his liberty might prove a hindrance to other believers. And from that day forward, he never smoked again. That was his personal conviction. You see, the important thing to Paul was not his own rights, his own liberties, his own freedoms, his own comforts, or his own pleasures, but the well-being of all Christians. 
And Paul chose to operate on a higher principle than knowledge. He operated, listen now, on the highest principle, which is what? Love. Someone said, love understands the sinful consequences of deliberately ignoring a weaker Christian's sensitivities. So instead of proving myself to be strong spiritually, I've, transg- I've, I've transgressed the law of love. It's awesome. You see, friends, Paul makes the principle very clear here that our actions can never be based only on what we know to be right for ourselves. We also need to consider what is right towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it's easy. It's very easy for a Christian to say, well, you know what, I answer to God and I answer to God alone. And that's true, we all, we all answer to God and to answer to God alone, but we will answer to God for how we treated our brothers and sisters in Christ. Two quick lessons here. Two quick lessons. The first one is this. Be, for, lesson number one is be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. Be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. I love that. Be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. So question, that being said, are you willing to give up your freedoms, your liberties, to keep a brother or sister from stumbling? Huh? From stumbling. Listen, do what you can to build up the weaker brother or sister in Christ. What does Paul say? Knowledge puffs up, but love, what? Love builds up. The second lesson is this. Second lesson is this. Love others more than our liberties. Love others more, got that? Than our liberties. Because love, say love, love is concerned about how its, its actions will affect others. Because love is willing, listen now, willing to sacrifice its own rights. I love that, for the sake of others. You see, real freedom, and I love this, real freedom involves the responsibility of love. And Paul's point is this. This is his point. Exercising liberty with love is the overriding principle for making our decisions in those gray areas. You see, as Christians, and I want you to get this, friends, we must not ask about our rights without also asking about our responsibilities. Now, if you're saved, say amen. One of you're saved, say amen. If you are saved, you are free to partake in your freedoms. You got it. You are free. You have the liberty to partake in your freedoms, but you, listen, but you are always bound, bound to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. So though, you are free from legalistic law-keeping. You are, you are to also be free from selfishness. You need to love your brother or sister more than you love your liberty. Listen, with liberty comes more responsibility to use one's freedom wisely and discreetly and to never abuse that liberty. As we wrap this up, I want us to look at several verses here. Let's go back to chapter 6. We studied this several weeks ago. Back to chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12. And Paul says this. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. He goes on to say, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be, what, mastered 
by anything. Okay, now let's go to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10, and let's look at verses 23 and 24. Chapter 10, 23 and 24. And Paul writes, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Verse 24 says this, No one should seek his own good, but the good of others. Chapter 10 again, verses 31 and 32. Chapter 10, 31 and 32. He writes this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause, verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble for the Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. So, so with those verses in mind, question, how should a Christian decide whether or not to engage in a certain activity and a certain liberty in those gray areas? Well, you can ask yourself several questions. And we're going to wrap this up with this. Is this activity necessary or liberty necessary or is it something non-essential that's not really important to my life? Is this activity really helpful? Is it profitable for me? Is it beneficial? Is this activity something that, that Jesus would do if he were in my place right now? Does this activity promote or support what is good, what is right and true according to God's standards? Is this activity something that would be a good example of behavior for other Christians to imitate? If my unsaved friends, listen now, if my unsaved friends saw me doing this activity, would it lead them closer to trusting Christ? Or would it show that Christ doesn't really make a difference in my life? Will this activity help me and others around me to become more mature spiritually? Will this activity enslave me? Will it have mastery over me? If I engage in this activity, listen now, can I be sure that some other believer will not be harmed by following my example? And finally, last question. Will my participation in this activity bring glory, honor, and praise to God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that, that we, we would all take to heart what we have, have learned from your word today. And yes, Lord, we, we are free to partake in, in our freedoms but might we never forget that we are bound to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that with liberty comes the responsibility of love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone say amen. Now perhaps there's someone who's listening today and You've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And today you're saying, you know what, Pastor? I, I just feel something tugging in my heart. That's the Spirit of God pulling you to himself. And you're saying, you know what? I want to follow Christ today. I, I want to make a change in my life. I want to be a Christ follower. I want him in my life. And that's you. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will, not might, but you will, be saved. 
So if that's you today, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me, okay? Jesus, I invite you to come into my life today to, to save me, to change me, and to cleanse me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. And from this day forth, I will serve you and live for you faithfully until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you said that prayer, man, we would love to hear from you. If you said that prayer, you can email us at contact at cryout.org. Again, that's contact at cryout.org. Okay? Love you all. Miss you all. Have a great, awesome Sunday and the rest of the week. God bless you. Take care. See you next Sunday.